And if you look and act differently than us, come on. We are the, the community of y'all come. Have y'all. <laughs> you sure you're not from Texas, man? Yeah. Well, Alabama. I guess Alabama's close enough. The community of y'all come. It's not Yahweh. It's y'all come. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of This Is Not Church. Uh, this is John, and I'm here with my brother, Nat. I would say wave, but we're not doing video uh, for the the podcast, but I go can, ahead and wave and say hi. I'll, I'll wave. I'm doing the princess wave. Hi. Well, the princess wave. There you, you go. Uh, well, we are so uh, honored to have a, just an awesome guest with us today. His name is Alexander John Shia. I'm going to read you his bio really quick, and then uh, then we're just going to we're just going to hit the ground running because we we got we got things we want to talk about. So Alexander Amen. John Shia is a thoughtful and poetic man living in the ancient rhymes of his Lebanese and Aramaic heritage. Alexander is a spiritual director, educator, psychologist, and passionate professional speaker traveling internationally, lecturing and leading retreats and workshops. When not on the road, home is a fishing village on the coast of Spain or in the beloved mountains of uh, above Santa Fe, New Mexico. So those are two completely different areas, right? Um, uh, just... Uh, but I like welcome. the opposites. <laughs> like the opposites. But so, uh, just welcome <laughs> yeah. to the podcast, and we are so happy that you're here with us. Thanks, guys. It's delightful to be here. And yes, I'm actually looking out at the Atlantic Ocean as I talk to you. That's uh, wow. Man. Now, yeah, but, but, but from the but from the Spanish side, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. From the better side, we go so far as to say from the better side. <laughs> hey, if you're on the Spanish side, brother, you're on the better side. I well, you know, I, literally, because I, where I am is the northwest corner. And it, I'm, I'm in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. Didn't you say that you're you're farther west than than Ireland, right? I'm farther west than the west coast of Ireland. Which this I is think literally the 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 land mass that's closest to the to the continent of the United States. Wow, wow. that is just that's, that's <laughs> blowing my mind, and and. And showing myself that my geography is terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you spend like do you like split the year or do you spend like a, a a whole year there and then come back for visits here? I mean, how how do you split your time, John? I I don't know. This is all new. <laughs> um, oh, is it? Oh, okay. I just well, I, I it took me a year to to get a, an official residence visa into Spain. Oh, okay. Which which just happened. I just finished the process a couple of weeks ago. And, okay. and now I'm here. Oh. And I don't know how long I'm going to be here. Okay. Because I, I was going to ask you how, how winters but, are there. Does it get like crazy, you know, crazy winters being on the, right there on the Atlantic like that? I, what I understand is it's uh, very wet and gray and windy and, and huge waves. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> so much All like right, the well, East Coast of the U.S. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, a lot like the Pacific Northwest. Uh, well, Pacific I Northwest. love the Pacific Northwest. Now you're talking my my world. Yeah. I love the Pacific yeah, Northwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so that, that that's that's fun in, with the geography, but I want to I want to I want to delve into <laughs> some stuff. So uh, <laughs> if we could just start maybe by you giving us a little bit of your your kind of your religious upbringing, your background, uh, just so our viewers kind of get that kind of information about you. So I I think I'm definitely maybe your first radical Catholic. Uh, and and we can also tag on uh, an out gay Catholic, but 
I grew I grew up in Alabama uh, in, the, in the difficult days of the 1950s. Okay. Uh, my, yeah. my family, my parents were born in Lebanon and came to the States as young children. And so I'm first first generation Lebanese immigrant, sort of second generation, maybe emotionally. But uh, growing up in Birmingham, Alabama in the 1950s, uh, the, the KKK, uh, the word colored in Alabama related to certainly African-Americans, but it also related to Lebanese, uh, to Greeks, to some Italians, uh, pretty much anybody with a darker skin tone uh, right. who came from the southern Mediterranean region uh, and all Catholics. Of course. So, uh, uh, so I stood outside my grandmother's house in 1957 after it had been firebombed by the KKK. Wow. Uh, and, and we could go on from there. But my religious upbringing is a form of, of Catholicism, but it's what we call an Eastern Rite Catholicism. It's the Roman Catholicism that's in Lebanon, which is very different from the Roman Catholicism that most people know about because right. uh, uh, we have an unbroken tradition of married clergy. Wow. Uh, the, the head of our church is a patriarch who is co-equal with uh, the patriarch of Rome, which is known as the Pope, etc. So it, it, it's, a, it's a very small version of the Catholic Church, but very different from what most people think of as Catholicism. Okay. And I grew up with the language at church on Sunday being Aramaic. Uh, and Aramaic was a language that we had to learn to participate in the, in worship. And then so much of the liturgy I grew up with was about chanting and smells and bells and all that sensory experience. It was not so much reason or word driven, which is very different from probably most of your Probably most of the people you have on the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll be honest and tell you that I, I have no idea. I've never heard of, of I, that, that all sounds very, very new to me, which actually makes me super happy because I like to hear about new things. And I have, I don't know, I, 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 starting about 10 years ago, I really dove into a very ecumenical sort of theology, if that makes sense. And so realized that a lot of my understandings of any faith traditions outside my own, I was super ignorant about. And super, like super bigoted about, like, you know, we had it right and everybody else was wrong. So um, I love to see that that's changing in me and I get to see, you know, uh, all of these different vantage points. So what you're, what you're speaking of there, uh, it just resonates with me. Very, very cool. So how does that work? How does that function? I guess if you are not technically tied to the Roman church, then you said that the head of the church is co-equal. Do y'all recognize the authority of the Pope at all? Or is he just yet like another patriarch that sort of yeah the the what well, he's the he's the chair of the board okay okay so so in, in in Roman Catholicism there are 13 traditions each tradition is headed by a patriarch and the Pope gotcha. is the patriarch of the West but there are 12 other patriarchs and the Pope can't call my patriarch and tell tell him what to do he can call him up and say, I've got a concern about what's happening, let's talk. But this, this idea of a monolithic Roman church with, with the Pope as the ultimate head over the entire body is not accurate. 
And it's not accurate to say that, that Roman Catholicism has no married clergy. My all, all all twelve of the thirteen traditions have always had married clergy. It's only it's only the the uh, the Western tradition which hasn't had a tradition of married clergy. And we could go on and on and on about that. But I just yeah, but all of the um, problems that it's caused as well. It's, <laughs> gr- gr- yeah, I mean, gr- growing up in Alabama as a Catholic, and then as this weird Eastern tradition Catholic that the rest of the Catholics didn't understand, and and then uh, discovering that I was gay, and all of this is just, a, I feel like a minority <laughs> right. of a minority yeah. of a minority. But, but I've got this perspective, which I love, because it, it stands a little bit outside of yeah. what everybody thinks is no, true. No, and, and man. It definitely does. It, 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 uh, people have their preconceived notions and you get to blow them all out of the water and go, well, actually, it's not quite like that. So, wow. What a, what a great perspective, though. Francis is the first Roman pope who understands the other 12 traditions. John Paul did, John Paul didn't, and Benedict didn't. But, for, but, but Francis did. And I could go on and on about that. But, but Francis is the first one who understands that he's not the, not the monolithic head of this whole thing. Well, the sad part is, and I'm uh, I'm going to have to show my ignorance now. Is this? I, I didn't know any of that. None of that. This is this is all. I'm hearing all of this for the first time. I'm 51 years old. And I'm hearing this for the first time in my life. We'll, I, for, I always, we'll forgive you for being a young one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just because you're but, so young, John. It's just. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's you know, it's you know. Nat and I, you know, we come at this from different points of view. My my point of view is from outside the church looking in, you know, from someone who was in the church for a while and then left. But it's, yeah. it saddens me how ignorant most people in the Christian faith are about any kind of tradition outside of their own tradition. It's it's kind of it's not only it's it's depressing. First of all, yeah, it's sad. And how how are we ever going to get to a point where we can get along if we're not even willing to take the time to learn about these other traditions that have been around probably longer than ours? You know, this this idea that Guaranteed. we have this great tradition of this <laughs> you know this Protestant reformed whatever bullshit, and uh, then we come to find out these other religions are are way more ancient than ours and been around a lot longer than ours. I went on a uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, what a walk to Emmaus is uh, uh, within the Catholic Church. They would call it Crucio. It's almost the same Season thing, three. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So about twenty, about two thousand eight, I go on this retreat. I'm sort of dragged, kicking and screaming into this thing because I didn't want to. But so I'm a, I'm a dyed in the wool Protestant, charismatic, you know, non denominational guy, right? And they drag me to this Catholic retreat center, and my hackles just went, oh, why am I here in this, you know, got a bunch of godless papists, you know, and. uh and then I and then I spent seventy two hours in the presence of these amazing people and and met with people who were from every you know potential walk of life within our Christian tradition, right? Everyone from people like me to Episcopalians and Protestants, you know, Lutherans, and and then when I when I got to the end at, at the end of a walk to Emmaus, you're asked to speak for a few minutes and you know for a, like a minute and talk about your experience. And I remember saying something to the effect of that what that weekend exposed in me was, was, um, was bigotry. I had no idea existed. And I was thankful for that because it outed that It made me, it made me confront that. And, uh, I've been on that journey ever since of, okay, how big, how wide, 
how diverse is this thing that we call Christianity? Because um, it cannot be simply what we've made it. And uh, so I'm thankful for that experience. And I'm thankful to meet guys like you who exposed me to in, in another stream of Christianity that I was unfamiliar with. So that is really, really cool. Well, I just, um, the, the very first sort of roughhouse fistfight I got into as a kid was with my best friend, Michael, who lived two doors down from me. And uh, he called me a papist. And mm. I didn't even know what the word meant, but I didn't like his tone of voice. And <laughs> later I went right. home and said, said, said to my mom, what the word papist means? <laughs> but yeah. I just like to use it because it's a fun word. So, yeah. so you know, what, what, back to, to where John was sort of leading us a minute ago, it's like when I grew up learning Aramaic uh, as the language at church, uh, I heard the scriptures chanted in Aramaic. Mm. And what I learned by that is because my, my grandparents couldn't read or write. They never could read or write Arabic or English. Um, they had memorized the Gospels by memorizing the way that they were chanted at church on Sunday. So I grew up on my grandmother in Arabic called Sitha. I grew up sitting on her lap, and she chanted the Gospels to me in Aramaic. Because that's, that's the only way she knew them. But, but what that reminded me of, which is so different from, I assume, the Christianity that you grew up in, is in, in the Middle East, if something is sacred, it's always chanted. It's, it, it's considered profanity to read something in your reading voice. If it's sacred, it has to be chanted. Because the 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 meaning of it is not only in the words, it's in the melody and in your breath. That's yeah, man. It's just we're just delving deeper and deeper. And this is what I love about this podcast. And this is what I love about you know getting these you know people like you on here. It's like it's just like I had no clue where we were gonna go really, right? And uh, <laughs> this is like, where are I'm we just going? like yeah, I don't I, nobody knows. This, this nobody is like, knows. this is like exactly why I. I wanted to do a podcast is to talk to people like you to get this, these insights. I mean, just, I mean, I got chills just listening to you talk about sitting on your, your grandmother's lap and her chanting these, the gospels. I mean, that's just Hmm. because the the Western evangelical fundamentalist Christian church doesn't, doesn't do this, right? They don't, they've lost the connection to the mystery. They've lost the connection to the, the, the holiness of all this. Um, it, it's, it's been replaced with rock bands, laser light shows, moralism. And we, we can go on and on and on with that list. I, I had no idea. To give, I mean, as a, as a child, you norm your childhood and think it's everybody's. Right. So I, I, I grew up thinking that this was the Christianity everybody knew. Boy, when I got to college, was I shocked? <laughs> yeah. like, wait, wait, you don't all chant the scriptures? What, what, what's wrong with you? Well, well, I mean, you know, I, I get to, I got went to Notre Dame in the late 1960s, early 1970s, uh, kind of the God is dead moment. Yeah, and 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 my my two brilliant um, roommates uh, are very much uh, philosophers who are who are like proved to me the existence of God, and I'm like. Don't you feel it in your breath? Don't you know it in the melody that you sing and chant? How how do I prove that to you? Yeah. 
it's it's impossible, right? Well, for me, growing up for me, it was a total sensory embodied experience. I was uh, I was someplace a few years back. I'd, I'd traveled to Houston, I think it was, to to visit with Brad Jersak. And so Brad's the first Orthodox guy that I know that I become familiar with, and and I start really, really, really enjoying the th- first of all the theology of of the Eastern Orthodox Church by and large is stuff that resonates with me as well. But there's a lot of chanting as well. And he did a thing where at one point he started, I think they're called the Octo Echoes, where he starts chanting. And and it was just, I told him later, I'm like, I'm, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat listening to him chant about the victory of Christ, about how he's plundered Hades, about how he's, you know, he's robbed the strong man and he's come out, you know. So this the whole notion of, of atonement within the Orthodox Church, and I'm certain within probably your stream of Catholicism, is so victorious and triumphant. It's not that God beat the hell out of Jesus to pay some, you know, weird price for sin. It was no that Jesus defeated death from the inside out. Right? I mean, it's it's just utter victory. It's not atonement. It's theosis. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly. That, that we are born in. We're, we're created in the image of God that we gradually, our whole lives, come to understand who we are. And coming to understand who I am, my authentic self, is my divine, is my connection to divinity. Yeah. And, and that that's always an ongoing process. There, there's no goal line. There's no, right. I've made it. It's just, right, you just right. keep going deeper. But, but I, the, the whole sense of, where does the, this this phrase, you know, the Kitty Eleison, um, the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, where does that come from? It was the it was the chant of the Greek soldier returning uh, to Spartaca in victory. Mm. Their chant, the Kitty Eleison, is to the king victory, which the which the soldiers would chant, and the people in the village would wait to hear to announce. That they had, that they were coming back victorious in battle. The first 500 years of Christianity. When do we chant that? We chant that at the beginning of Sunday worship, when we stand up and recognize that we need to be more. And we don't do it in the sense of um, I'm coming here to confess my sins. We do it in recognizing my vulnerabilities. I give the victory to Christ. Wow, that's theosis. Let, let me ask you this then, so because you've pushed back a little bit on 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 atonement, and I and I'm and I'm happy for that. Let's talk about that for a second, because atonement for me implies that something is broken that needs to be fixed, and that to me has been what the what the what religion has pulled down over our eyes for two thousand plus years is the lie that something was fundamentally broken versus whatever 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 theosis is and let's so let's let's draw that that line of distinction between a religious concept of atonement something that was broken that had to be fixed and theosis so and i just want to it's not that i want to i just i want to sharpen up for me what you just said in the sense that to me the first the first six centuries of christianity are primarily an understanding of jesus the christ through the lens of theosis You've got, but you've got theosis reaching its apex and beginning to go down as atonement begins to come up. 
But the first four centuries of Christianity are not atonement whatsoever, whatsoever. Mm. They are, they are totally theosis, and it's why all of our recent scholars don't know how to understand the early church, because they're looking back through the lens of atonement at something which just wasn't atonement at all. The, the first four it's why I love, I can't wait for Brad's new book about Irenaeus, because Irenaeus is my great hero. It's going to be amazing. Ir, yeah, because Irenaeus is telling us that the foundation of the choice of gospel text is the journey of transformation, mm. there were, which is theosis. We're always on the journey to understand who we have already been made in the image of. Wow. So an awareness of that is, so that's because that's kind of where like a Richard Rohr for me comes into play, right? Where he talks about, listen, we're not chasing the presence of God. God is always present. What we need, yeah. what we lack is awareness, right? What we, so, so this whole theosis process is us coming into an awareness of who we really are, the connection that we already have to the divine and not jumping through, you know, hoops and, and, you know, running whatever obstacle course has been set for us to somehow reconnect with something we were never actually disconnected from in the first place. Am I, am I saying that right? You think? Absolutely. And I would take it a step further and put it back in the language. You can't go take Jesus anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> true. Jesus, Jesus the Christ is in every grain of soil of the cosmos. Mm, yes. So you can go somewhere and begin to evoke the experience of the Christ, which is already there. Mm. So sort but of there's nowhere. Of- there's right. Come to understand it. Come to appreciate it in a new way. No, I like it. If you go somewhere to take Jesus there, what you're doing is you're disrespecting the Jesus, which has already always been there since the first moment of creation. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. How 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 arrogant of you? How arrogant is that to walk around and go, "Hey, yeah. let me bring you the real Jesus because you haven't had the real one yet." Oh yeah. Wow. Oh no, yeah. We've we've, t- we've talked about that. You know, the whole idea of the, of of. Again, I, I don't. I don't want to. I don't. I feel like I bash the, the Western Church a lot. And, uh, I, I'm not, I don't think they're the only ones that have done this, but, you know, this, this, this notion of colonizing, right? And going into a, a an area that's, they're heathens, they're, they're, uh, you know, uneducated. Uh, it was Felicia Merle, right? It was like, hey, do you realize that you guys came to Africa to teach us about God and Jesus? And Jesus has been here longer than he was in the Americas. <laughs> It's like, do you understand how hypocritical you're being right now, trying to introduce us to a Jesus we've known longer than you've known? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the Ethiopian church is how old? I mean, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, with this idea of uh, you know not having atonement as the as the basis of your of your faith, and this idea that you're just coming into the awareness of who you've always been, right? That you, that you've always been this, this, this oneness with God and with, with the Christ. I'm going to, I'm just going to jump right into another topic and say, okay, so at some point you, you came out as gay. And, um, was this, you know, from a, from our, from my faith religion or tradition, that would be something that you would be like, hell no, that you don't want to do that. Because there's nothing, there's nothing in this faith tradition that says that's an okay step to take. But coming from this idea of this connection with the with the divine, and that you are you are 
complete as you are, was that an easier step for you? Or was it still, I mean, I'm sure the, the time, the era, and where you were living didn't make it easy. But did your faith background make it any easier? Uh, yes, for on, on two accounts. One is high school in the late 1960s in Birmingham, Alabama was was uh, my definition of hell. Oh, yeah. Um, I think I think I mean I think we were 230 people in my senior school high school uh, class, and uh, there were two of us that were questioning the Vietnam War. Um, it was, it it was Birmingham, Alabama, late 1960s. Um, I get to Notre Dame and for the first time I took a real easy, deep breath and I came out in my theology class. Oh, wow. Uh, I wrote a, 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 our professor had assigned us a series of, of great books to read. Uh, somehow in that, I wrote a paper or a theological expression of homoeroticism and got this lovely note back from him about uh, what a beautiful exploration that was and keep going. And, uh, I, you know, you know what my office hours, if you ever want to come and talk to me, which I, I never did. But um, the next theology class I took was from an Episcopal priest. And I did go and talk to him and just... He was the first person I said that I was gay, and just was like, "Great, beautiful, wonderful, keep going." Um, so I, I just had the most incredible step once I left Alabama. But in Alabama, I have to say it was a pretty difficult time of trying to figure out who I was in high school because there were so many pressures to conform. Oh yeah, I mean you, like you said, you had the. Uh... You know, the, 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 the racial bigotry, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you, you knew, you knew what your fellow classmates would think of anyone who came out as gay. Um, uh, Absolutely. You know, high, high school, high school is, is just, is brutal anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Ugh. No, I mean, it was, yeah. I mean, this is like pre-Stonewall. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, I mean, I, I, John and I can't even conceive of this because having been raised in the Pacific Northwest, both of us in the 70s and the 80s, you know, so deep South Alabama in the 50s and the 60s is, is otherworldly, you know, um, so yeah. I can't even imagine. Sadly, sadly, we're getting another look at that other world. No, we really are. No, it's, it, it's, it does have a tendency to come around full circle again, doesn't it? Um, we don't seem to learn much from our, from our mistakes, but Neil Young will have to come out and write another song about Alabama. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> but what's fascinating to me is, John and I have both been on a journey, I, I would say, maybe we've approached it differently, but um, having our minds renewed, as it were, um, considering things like the LGBTQ community and, 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 and recognizing the harm that the church has done to that community in particular and how they've been targeted by us for way too long over, over stuff we don't even really understand. And so to have people like you on who, uh, who help us understand that perspective better um, to help us love one another better and create a more inclusive open space. There's got to be more places where people can, can be, can be who they are, man, and not think that they're going to suffer yeah. the, the, yeah. the, you know, the retribution of some religious, you know, cult almost that says, no, 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 you know, that's not right. So for that, I, I appreciate having you on for many, many other reasons, but. Well, I just want to say, cause I, I understand the pain of so many of my Christian brothers and sisters. Yeah. 
um, and all the variations of gender. Um, I'm just, I, I, it, as I grow, I understand also the privilege that I had to grow up in the way that I did. Yeah. And the professors that I had, et cetera. It, it's really a pretty rare experience. I wish more people had it. But for that, for that period of time, it was very rare. Well, and hopefully as we, as we move forward, we can, we can, we can help to make that less rare. You know, I know that uh, with, oh, uh, with the, within my within my little tiny church, um, we're working very hard to make sure that that's the experience people have when they come to us. You know, that they find open ears and open hearts, and that's that's what we that's all, isn't that all we really need? You know, just to be accepted for who we are. And yeah, I, I think also um, a, a really good friend of mine um, during Pride Month. Uh, he he vowed to put something up every every day on Facebook, you know, some kind of just a story or uh, about his experience as a as a openly gay man. And but one of the one of the days he he asked us as friends to respond to his question, which was, "When did you realize, or when did you come to the conclusion that love is love?" And that's, and that's all that it is. And so I, I, I kind of toiled about it. I was like, I don't know. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm very open about my, my support of the LGBTQ plus community. But, you know, sometimes it's, you don't, you don't, you don't want to type it out, right? You don't want to put it out there, even though everyone knows my stand. But I finally was like, no, he's asking, he's asking a really good question. I'm going to go ahead and do it. And so it was just being raised in a very conservative Christian background where this was just not accepted. Uh, this was considered a sickness, uh, something that could be prayed out of somebody, you know, converted out of somebody, right? All this crap that we, that, you know, we look back at now. And, you know, for me, what it was, was I just, I, I entered into a, a theater community, a local theater community and, um, was introduced to a group of people that I would never have met if I hadn't entered into this community. And you become friends with them. Right. You just get to know these people that you, you've never known. And then you start realizing that, Oh my God, there is no difference. They love the same things. They get hurt by the same things. They are excited about the same things. They, they are looking for acceptance and love and, you know, someone to share their experiences with. And then you're like, Oh shit. I have been told, I've been sold a bill of goods my whole life about this group of people who are on the verge of just being, you know, I, you don't want to say it, but it's like they're, they're disgusting. They have, they have mental issues. They can never be trusted. And then you're like, Oh, uh, this is all 100% wrong. Absolutely wrong. And then you start realizing, then you say, you say you question all that and you're like, okay, no, they're loved and they're loved by God. Exactly who they are. And God damn it, just give them the chance to be who they are and just give them the space. And I mean, we can say that the same for the LGBTQ community, for the, for African Americans, for the native people, indigenous people. I mean, we, we, we box them all into these, you know, either they're savages, they're thugs, they're, you know, these weird gay people who like to dress weird and we don't understand them, all that, right? Yeah. And it's all just, it's just wrong. But we've all seen how you dress, so. <laughs> I'm sorry, John. I, I realize that your listeners can't see how vigorously I'm nodding my head. Yes, 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 yes. And, and, and what, what I get so excited about and uh, so sad about 
is early Christianity is the first religious tradition on the planet which said we have a room and a table and a door that is open to anyone. Right. You know, Buddhism is not there at this point 2,000 years ago. Hinduism is not there. Judaism believed that everybody is equal, but they weren't at the point yet of saying, we got a door, come and be with us as family. They were like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll treat you wonderful as the passing guest, which they should, as we all should. But Christianity is the first tradition that says to the world, all of that personality stuff doesn't matter here. Here in this space, we are brother and sister to everything and everyone. And, and that idea has grown over the last 2,000 years, which I'm grateful for. But we as Christians are going against the very foundational spiritual practice of our tradition, which is that open door and that willingness to drop another chair and another chair and another chair and another chair. And if you look and act differently than us, come on. We are the, the community of y'all come. Have y'all. <laughs> <laughs> you sure you're not from Texas, man? Yeah. Well, Alabama. Alabama. I guess Alabama's close enough. The community of y'all come. It's not Yahweh. It's y'all come. Um, <laughs> man, I, I, love, I love all of that, you know, and um, I, I wanted to ask you then, Go so piggybacking off of what you said, when we we sort of draw this line of distinction between atonement and theosis. Um, how does that then play into? Because I was I was fooling around your website. There's some really great stuff there, by the way. If y'all need to check out um, his, what we'll link to the we'll link to it in the page notes. Uh, but quadrados, right? Um, and I was looking right. at your four paths. This, this beautiful strange word that I coined. I love it, man. Uh, so you coined quadrados? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I coined I coined the name. So way back in Notre Dame, this incredible uh, four years that totally changed my life. Um, one of my little known, passionate erudite professors at Notre Dame every every year is Joseph Campbell. He comes to teach in the theology department about how Scripture has all the the themes of great myth in it, and he is the one who said who says to me says to all of us in the class that I'm in, all great mythic stories of transformation, and myth really for him is just a great story of transformation. All great stories of transformation are written to have four parts. Must They must have four parts. And I hear him in 1972 say this, and I immediately thought, is there a connection here to how Christianity ends up with four gospel texts? Not three, not two, not one, right. not five. Four. Four. And that and, and and of course Irenaeus is the one in 180 who said he didn't say we've got to go have all the two stories of Jesus. Irenaeus said the basis of the gospel choice must be the number four, and nobody to this day, understands why he says that, because they're locked in the Enlightenment, and they're locked in the Atonement, and they don't understand early Christian history. Wow. What he's saying is that the choice of the gospel is going to adhere to what is the universal mythic way of telling the journey of transformation. It must have four parts. And the four parts of the great story of transformation are, one, you got to wake up. 
And the wake-up gospel is the gospel of Matthew. And waking up and making the decision to grow, you're going to face trials and obstacles. That's what Campbell would say. And the gospel of trials and obstacles is Mark. And having woken up and stayed constant through the trials and obstacles, at some point, you're going to receive a tremendous new sense of vision and wider sight and greater understanding and maybe a lot of bells and whistles and scintillating feeling in your body, whatever. But uh, Campbell would say that you receive the gift, you receive the boon. I'm saying you get the larger vision of who you can be and how the world can operate. That's the gospel of John. Yeah, has to be. And finally, and finally, then it's not enough to just get the vision, because if you just get the vision, all you've done is good narcissism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now you've got to go make it part of your everyday life. And you've got to go serve the vision as you serve your own growth and transformation to become a person of greater love and greater justice, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the gospel of Luke Acts. And my my major work, which I call Radical Transformation and or the paperback version is Heart and Mind, shows how, how the gospel of Matthew Everything that organizes the Gospel of Matthew is the teachings of Jesus about how you wake up. Is it predicated on history? Yes, but it's not—it's not about telling its history. It's about telling its spiritual practice. Every everything in that Gospel, from the first word to the last, is about what it takes in us to wake up. And everything that we call the Gospel of Mark is about what about the spiritual practices that we uh, accept when we're in times of tremendous trial and obstacle. I might even use the word suffering. Catholics love the word suffering. <laughs> Presbyterians, pre- Presbyterians prefer trials and obstacles. Um, but whatever, whatever, your, whatever your word is, you, you can't go from wake up to vision. Right. It, it, they're, they're, whether it's five minutes or five months or five years, um, you've got to go through a time of shedding what you thought you knew. And that shedding is really difficult for us, especially in our culture today, which is about you got to know something. And here I'm saying you got to unknow something. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then comes the new vision. Once you've once you cleared out enough, you get the new vision. But the new vision is just a blueprint. And it can end up just being pie in the sky unless you do the fourth path, which is take that vision and sweat it out in trial and error to make it some part of your everyday reality and the everyday reality of your family, your community, your whoever. And, 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 and Irenaeus knew this. Irenaeus knew that we had to have the gospel it was not going to be the history of Jesus alone, but was going to be the history of Jesus as your internal walk of transformation. I'm actually listening to you and I'm furiously taking notes because all of yeah. this is just unbelievably cool to me. And so I'm, I'm writing down stuff as you're talking. I'm like, okay, I feel like I'm in class and uh, well, except I'm, in, except I'll, I'm I'll interested. 
Yeah, no, it's great. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to look up Joseph Campbell and see what he's got to say. And, but let me ask you this real quick. Um, so then do you take this four paths approach and do you incorporate this somehow in, in your Camino experience? Is there any, or am I just inventing something that maybe you should do? So. <laughs> uh, no, I, well, first of all, I, in the, the Camino, and I don't use the word lead, I use the word mentor. And there are a maximum of eight pilgrim, minimum of six, maximum of eight. And it's 60 days. And in these 60 days, we have a series of retreat days, interspersed. And this is, I, I use this not only to, to walk the pilgrimage, but also to help people understand the four paths and how the four paths are constantly ongoing in your life. Um, so it's both a Camino, the, the one with me, it's both the Camino in the way that it may be for many people, but also with the added um, element of teaching people how to frame quadratus as a, as a metaphor for their ongoing journey of transformation. Well, I was, I was just going to, I'm going to nerd out for just a second, just, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm going to ask you a one simple question because, uh, Joseph Campbell is the same person who writes about the hero's journey, correct? Correct. Within myth. So. Correct. George Lucas basically steals from Joseph Campbell, correct? Well, so, no, I mean, uh, Lucas went to Joseph Campbell. And, okay. And, and Joseph, Joseph Campbell was available on set helping them oh, to okay. do the Star Wars. So and Star Wars, Matrix, there, there are so many movies. All these people went to Campbell and said, teach us how to tell the great story of transformation in a new way. So what I find interesting is uh, we always hear about Lucas and, and Campbell with the hero's journey part. But we don't hear about these, these four paths, right? And I'm hearing more of that in the Star Wars saga, at least the, the original trilogy, than I am. I, I get the hero's journey. That's that's an easy that's an easy connection with that with that series. But these four paths are absolutely what Luke Skywalker is going through as he's becoming you know coming into who he is supposed to be, right? And right. you know, I, I don't want to nerd on, out on this too long, but it's just it, as you're talking, I'm like, this is like this is quite literally. The Star Wars story. This is Luke Skywalker's journey from denying who he is to the acceptance of who he is. Right? Totally, totally. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, you can read Campbell and you can get lost in the forest, Cause, right? Because he'll 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 he lays out seventeen steps in quote unquote the hero's journey. But when you understand those seventeen steps are are grouped under these four pathways yeah so um you know there, there's nothing magical about four Teresa of avila gives us exactly the same journey in seven castles and 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 campbell lays it out in 17 steps but when you listen to him he always brings you back to these four categories under which the 17 steps move and, and Campbell will say, if a story doesn't take you through all four of these elements, it'll, it'll be a fad story. It'll last a short while in the culture, but the culture won't, 
grab onto it because it instinctively knows something's missing. Mm. That is so interesting. It reminds me somewhat of, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Rene Girard, but um, similarly, he comes at, he comes to the Bible in a backwards way as a, as a literature professor. And when he starts to notice and recognize that all great pieces of literature have these same common elements, right? This is where he develops mimetic theory is all of these great pieces of literature, they all have the same, you know, this idea of rivalry and, you know, um, the, see, see, uh, see, the see. conflict that, it, that, that inevitably comes, right? This sort of triangulation of desire and it, all this stuff comes. And then what he noticed in scripture was that, the, that in scripture, what turned it around for him, I think, was that he saw in scripture that, that the model that had been predicated, you know, every, everything else had been predicated upon, that the, that the scripture breaks that mold to some degree, where the voice of the victim does not get squashed. The voice, of, the voice of the victim actually gets elevated to some extent. We don't just, the blood of Abel cries out from the ground, right? Right. right. Where normally, normally those who are vanquished are plowed under and forgotten. And scripture tells this different story and that kind of got his attention. So, but I love that, that literature and great myth and all of this stuff, because C.S. Lewis, you know, talks about myth as well. And I want to come, I want to come in behind that or underneath that to say, you know, Irenaeus in the second century talking about the gospel's got to be for what Christianity is doing requires that they have a disciplined process of transformation. Right. It's all well and good to say to the world, we've got a door and a table, come be with us. But how long is it when all that world's diversity is sitting at the table, when you want to kill each other? When right. it's like, God, God, those, those people from the South, they just talk so slow. And, and, and the East, they, they, they're so uppity. And, the, and those slaves, when, when was the last time they had a bath? And, right. and, and, then, and then we're going to talk about budgets on top of that. And literally, Christianity was a process which didn't just baptize people into knowing Jesus the Christ. It was a process to teach us how to live with the world's diversity as brother and sister. Right. And to do that and to do that, they outlined this journey of transformation, which the gospel becomes the story of. Right. But have you noticed that when we talk any more about uh, discipleship or training in that way, that we have flipped the script completely on what we mean by that? And so now the modern church's idea of discipleship is to train you how to be a more moral person. How, yeah. to, how to how to how to train you how to be more separate from the world and keep yourself at a distance. We've abandoned the project of how do we love one another better. How for you to be your authentic, unique self, step one. But step two is how to put your uniqueness in conversation yeah. with diversity. Right. So that the communion can can support your authenticity and your authenticity can support the community. How do we make also, how, we have to learn how to make room for other people's authenticity, right? So I, I'm allowed right, to be exactly. myself, but I haven't figured out how to let you be yourself. And so everything we've done has been inculcated with this idea of like, like cramming everyone into a cookie cutter, right? So, right. Well, and I was, I was going to piggyback on that and basically say that, so the, 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 what the church seems to do wrong in this is they, they become the martyr in this. They become the, so you're allowed to be who you are. I'm supposed to accept you in the way that you are. 
but uh, poor me, I don't get to be who I am. Like, well, no, it's, that's not it at all. You aren't being hindered. You aren't being put into a box. You aren't being shut away. You're just, the only thing that's being asked of you is to open your mind a little bit and see that not everyone is like you and just accept that. Exactly. And, but somehow they've flipped that script and it's like, see, once again, we just can't, we can't be who we are. It's like, no, be who you are. Be your, you know, I'm a middle aged white heterosexual man. I can walk around being who I want to be without any issues. I can go buy the stuff that, that connects to me at any store. You know, I, I don't, I don't have to be intentional on where I go to be who I am, but we, we don't, we don't, we're not willing to open up our minds and see that other, other groups of people have to be intentional because we have made it impossible for them to be who they are. And we just, we just need to open it up and just say, Hey, we're all accepted. We are all loved. We are all children of God. Amen. Why, why, why can't we just start there? <laughs> why can't we all just get along, man? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's true though. It's, it's very basic and simple, right? Well, it's basic and simple but it takes learning certain practices to keep it going forward. Yes. And you're, you're, you're describing exactly the situation in Ephesus where this gospel that we call John was, was birthed because this community of Ephesus had been born in the beatific vision of oneness. And 50 years later, they're killing each other. All the, all the, the privilege, all, all the patriarchy, all the judgment, all the in-group and the out-group has surfaced again. And John's text is about bringing us back to oneness. And from the fourth chapter through the twelfth chapter of John is the most incredible psychological, spiritual manual about the stuff in us that keeps us away from deepening in oneness. And we don't have time for that discussion. But it's, it's, all, but it's, all, but it's all right there. And it's why the early church, and when I say early church, the first 500 years, said every community must pray the text of John before Easter every year because Easter was not about only the memory of Jesus coming out of the tomb, but it's about our rolling the rock away from the tomb in our own hearts so that we can develop deeper oneness. And the text to deeper oneness are these incredible grace-filled passages in John that very sadly have been horribly mistranslated through the eyes of, of uh, dual uh, dualism and atonement, and it, none of it's true to the original text. Wow. See, now we need time for that whole discussion because that's uh, that's yeah. that's amazing stuff. So that means we have to do this again at some point. But yeah, but, but before before we end, I just. My work is not just about producing these books, but um, over over seven years of work, uh, a team of, of people, pastors and spiritual directors from around the world, we came together and we wrote something called the Heart and Mind Community, which is about a 16-month process. And I know people freak out at that, but that's about what it takes to truly live in to a new vision of how we can be a harmonious diversity of Wow. Yeah, that, that sounds amazing. I'm actually going to probably go on Amazon and buy that book so I can flip through a little bit. Um, the Heart and 
John, John mentioned earlier that he's sort of outside the church. I'm still very much inside the church. Um, I pastor a small church here in West Texas. And, um, and that's what we're doing. The name of the church is Open Table. And because yeah. that's, that's what we're about, you know, is that life happens around tables and that we don't get to set the guest list for who is, you know, the doors are swung wide open and the tables are set and everyone's invited. And hopefully they find a place where everyone can be their authentic selves and find out what that even means. Cause so much, so many of us don't even really know what that means because so much of that authenticity in us has been suppressed that we need a place to, to stretch a little bit and find out who we really are. And religion is, has, has, you know, given us um, all kinds of neat masks to wear and provided us with all kinds of scripts that we're supposed to memorize, but there's not a piss poor job of helping us grow into who we are, you know? So that's why the work that you're doing is so important, I think. Thanks, man. One of the critical lessons for us, one of the critical lessons for us is learning how to respect tension. Yeah, exactly. Because where, wherever there's going to be authenticity and diversity, there's going to be tension. Please don't resolve it. Please don't resolve it. Um, it is, it's the jewel. It's the soil of, of, a, of a whole new vitality. One of, one of my new mantras right now is just becoming comfortable being uncomfortable. Because yeah. uh, if I'm not willing to get uncomfortable and, and get into the mess of other people's journeys, then I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going to swear here for a second. But, you know, what, what the fuck are we doing? Uh, it really, and it's like, I can sit outside all day long and, and, and pretend to understand a journey, but if I'm not willing to get in and step into the mess and, and see and find out why you are who you are and what your journey was and how you came out on this other end as the person you are, then why are we even doing this? Yeah. That's, you know, yeah. and, and for so many faith traditions or re- specifically Christian traditions, but not, you know, I won't even, you know, I go and say other faith traditions do this too, is we're too busy putting on a, a show. We're too busy putting on our masks and having a whole group of homogenized people that look the same, act the same, react the same. And then they go home and they fall apart because that's not, they're, they're, that's not their story. Yeah. yeah. And so it's so important to have these, these conversations where we can say, Hey, your journey matters in every shape, way, and form. It matters. And, um, yeah, all, the only thing, other thing I want to say is, um, you know, we, we do record video. We don't very often put it up, but I'm absolutely not putting this one up because if anyone saw my, just my dumbfounded look on my face, me, my, my hand on my face, just going, I'm, I'm just getting blown away by all of this. I'm like, <laughs> they're like, look at, look at him. He doesn't even know what he's doing. He's just like covering his face. And- <laughs> but we do that a lot. We get, we get people on this, on this podcast and, and they just blow us away. And sometimes we just don't even know what to say. And we're like, Oh yeah, that was yeah. just really good. No. Um, I was going to say that I love, so I love that other tagline. I know you didn't mean it. I don't think you meant it as a tagline, but I like the don't resolve the tension thing. Um, don't resolve it, man. Learn to live in the tension. And I was telling a a group of teenagers. Treasure it. Treasure. I I got to, I had the privilege of being invited to speak at this small Methodist youth church, youth camp thing. And so literally about 18 or 20 teenage, you know, juniors and seniors in high school. And, I, my go-to, my go-to, if I need to throw something out there, if I'm going to get one chance to tell you a story about God, I'm going to preach on the prodigal son because 
I don't know how to say it better than that, right? And so I did this message that I've done a few times about the prodigal son, but I love that the prodigal son story doesn't resolve. There's tension in the end of that. The invitation has been extended. The father has gone out to the real prodigal, who is the older brother who thinks he's fine. And he's been begged, invited, cajoled, come on inside. And then we don't know how that ends. And learning to live in that tension is, is I don't, yeah, you're right. It's not just to be, it's not just something we have to learn to live with. We need to learn to celebrate and enjoy it because most of our lives are lived in that tension and seeking out those, those little happy endings, man, they just rarely work out. And so I, I, I love that you said that. I, I think that's a fitting way. To- I, I didn't learn this in Christianity. I learned this in my men's circle. You know, when, 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 we're, when, we're, when we're sitting in that room with each other and we're in our authenticity and the diversity and the tension is so thick, you can cut it with a, a butter knife. The, the leader says, all right, we're going to go chop wood or we're going to drum or we're going to chant. We're going to go do something with the energy of the tension, but mm. we're not going to try to verbally resolve it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and then it shifts. It's like, Grace happens, and the tension shifts into a deeper love and respect for each other's diversity. Wow. Unbelievable. Oh, man. Yes. And now I'll, I'll, all I want to do now is like go with you on a Camino for a couple months and hang out. And, and even though the walking part makes me nervous, but the rest of it sounds fantastic. <laughs> Come on. Come on. <laughs> the next time I have 60 days off, man, you and I are going to go hang out and do the Camino we, together. We, we, we eat well. I, I don't doubt it we for do. one second. We, we do. Uh, we, we eat well. We had a chance to talk to, uh, I talked to Perry, who's done the Camino like three times, I think now. Um, and she and Brian have done it together. And um, every time I talk to somebody who's done it, I'm like, oh, man, I just I just want to really, really badly. So it's on a bucket list. I just got to wait. I just can't wait till I'm like 80 and go, well, now I can wheelchair it down the, down the Camino. <laughs> <laughs> is that possible? Can we do that? Can we just have somebody carry me on the Camino path? Absolutely. People do. People do. <laughs> All right. Now I'm going to have to hire a Sherpa. And we'll take that. I, I just, watched, just watched a, I don't know. I just watched a video series of an 85-year-old woman. And she's such a strong walker. She was leading the pack. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. All right. The gauntlet has been thrown down. Right. Your challenge accepted. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, man, I have so enjoyed this, man. This has been so great. And I really, really hate to even cut it out. I, I think that we'll, we won't resolve the tension. How's that? We'll leave some, we'll leave some stuff hanging because right. I, I feel like, I feel like we should do this again at some point and, and go deeper into some areas. But man, Thank you. Thank you so much for, for making the time for us today. It's been really a beautiful thing. My thanks as well, really. I've enjoyed this hour with you a lot. Yeah, us too. Ciao. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.